Amen. Well, the global warming and the ecologist people tell us that the seas are drying up. We're going into drought. Tell them to move to South Georgia. <laughs> ah, the sound of rain. I love it. There's a farmer. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, we're going to begin a series on holy yet human. Most of my life growing up, the word holy had some interesting connotations. Uh, holy people didn't do a lot of things. Uh, it was more about what you didn't do than what you did. It was more about who you didn't hang around with than who you were in Christ. And uh, it, I, I think it, holiness got a bad name. And uh, we've let people define it by things that are not biblical uh, rather than defining the word holy biblically. And I say that because Jesus was holiness manifested in flesh. All holy God in a man. And sinners received him and listened to him gladly. And they marveled at him. They said, you teach, but you don't teach like all those other religious leaders that we've been listening to all our lives. What is it about God in flesh that attracts people, that people that talk about holiness are often turned off by those folks? Somehow we've gotten it wrong. The scripture says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And a lot of people just check out right there. So, well, you know, I can't do that. I mean, I, you know, I'll blow it before I go to bed tonight. I mean, I, there's no way I can do that. How can I do that? How can you even ask me to do that? How could God expect me to do that? How could God command me to do that? That's impossible. Well, it's not. Uh, and you don't have to look weird to do it. Um, so I want to give you some ideas here. The word holy is found 649 times in the Bible, so it must mean something. There's a holy land, a holy mountain, a holy hill, a holy temple, holy ground, the holy tabernacle, a holy calling, a holy place, a holy nation, the holy one, the holy covenant, the holy of holies, a day was holy, a city was holy, the Lord is holy, there was a holy man of God and a holy assembly. That's a lot of holy. <laughs> it says that God wants holiness to permeate our lives. Not to be compartmentalized, but to permeate who we are. And, and I would say that my goal in this series is for us to grow in holiness and to help all of us who are not satisfied with where we are, grateful for where we are, but not satisfied to stay there. We want to move on. We want to grow. We want to develop. We want to keep climbing the ladder. If I were to define holiness, I would say holiness is simply the great commandment. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a holy person. 
A holy person is somebody who loves God with everything they've got and loves their neighbor as themselves. You, you meet a person like that, they're right with God and they're treating their neighbor the way they're supposed to. How could that be repulsive? To treat people the way they're supposed to be treated, to love people the way they're supposed to be loved, the way God has loved you and the way you love God reflected out in the lives of other people. That's what holy living is all about. It's the abundant life. It's the life of fullness. It's the life of assurance, the life of power. It is the blessed life. I want you to look at this quote that's coming up and maybe you can get part of it in your notes. Someone has said the Christian life is an event followed by a process. It's not just an event. It's an event followed by a process. It's an experience that leads to a relationship. It's not just an experience. Oh, I had an experience with God. I've talked to people that are not walking with God. Oh, I had an experience. I had one of those religious experiences 35 years ago. Well, you got over it. It's an experience that leads to a relationship, a step followed by a walk, and an act followed by appropriation. Appropriating what God has done for us. So what do we mean by holy? Well, you and I know, and you're, you're good enough Bible students to know this, that, that when we talk about salvation, we're typically talking about, in the broadest sense, that moment of conversion. When we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the process. And so I want to give you three phrases. First of all, positional sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 says that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you got saved, positionally, God sees you through the eyes of Jesus Christ. He sees you as a sinner saved by grace. He sees you through the blood. Positionally, nothing can change your position in Christ. You're not in Christ one day, out of Christ the next day. You may be out of fellowship, but you're never out of relationship. And so positionally, that never changes. And if you're not where you're supposed to be, it, your position hasn't changed. Your fellowship has changed, but not the relationship. That's why I believe firmly that the Bible teaches that, that when you are saved, you are saved as long as you define salvation by biblical terms. Salvation is not just walking an aisle and making a decision. Salvation is a life-changing decision. It's a lordship decision. So positionally, you're in Christ. Practical sanctification, that has to do with your daily living. He says, be holy as I am holy. Literally, be being holy. Be about the business of being holy. It is a process. It is, it is a practical continuation. It is God working in our lives. And when he says, be holy as I am holy, with the command to do that comes the enablement to do it. God never asked you and he never asked me to do something that he has not empowered and equipped us to do. God doesn't ask us to do that which we are not capable of through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God is not going to lay something on you to throw you into a spin of guilt and shame and frustration because you say, well, he's asked me, 
but I can't live up to that. Well, you can't. That's why he has to do it through you. But God enables you to be holy as he is holy. John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is true. So what's the key to us understanding holiness? It's the word of God. The Holy Spirit, the author of the Holy Bible, the set-apart book from any other book, the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures teaches you and equips you in how to live a holy life. So we are sanctified in the truth. The more we get the Word of God in our minds, the more we study and apply it and memorize it and meditate on it, the more our minds are renewed and our hearts are renewed, and in a practical way, we are becoming more and more like what Jesus said for us to be. Now, that does not eliminate the old nature. I have a friend of mine that I went to college with who told me about, you know, 25, 30 years ago, he said, you know, I don't have an old nature. I'm a one nature guy. I said, I bet if I punched you in the gut, you wouldn't be. <laughs> and by the way, he left his wife and his kids. So I don't know if it was his old nature or his flesh, whatever you want to call it. He was still <laughs> had a sin issue. There's a battle. And which side wins depends on which side you feed. It's like two dogs can get in a fight. Which dog wins? The dog you feed the most. The dog that's the healthiest. The dog that's, that's the one that's prepared for the fight. You see, God has called us to be holy, but it doesn't mean that we have lost this battle that we are in. Of our old versus our new. That's why there's a need for absolute dependence. That's why there's a need for daily dying, for taking up the cross daily, for abiding and for walking in Christ. Why? Because if, if I don't do that, my old nature starts to take over. My old way of thinking starts to move to the forefront. As long as I am in the Word and abiding in Christ, then my old nature is subdued, if you will. You see, God didn't come to... to to give our old nature a tune-up. And the reason most people are failing in their Christian life is they think, God just tuned up my old man. God gave you a new nature. Your old nature was so depraved and so corrupt that he had to put a new nature inside of you. And you're always going to be in a battle until you meet Jesus. I mean, that's just a reality. It's going to be in a battle. When I have men in the ministry that are in their 60s and 70s that say to me, pray for me that I will not fail in my latter years, I realize it doesn't get any easier the older you get. It just doesn't get any easier. A friend of mine said to me who has preached in this church, he said, you know, he said, I'm 65. He said, my dad, who had been in ministry for 40 years, left my mom when he was 65. It doesn't get any easier. The, the battle, there's not a, a switch that you throw. And say, so now I'm relieved of all temptation. Now I'm relieved of all the battles. That's why there's a daily dying. You see, we become saints in a moment, but we are not overnight saints. We are saints in that we are set apart. Now, the Catholic Church 
emphasizes saints, and so we don't talk about that much in a Baptist church, but, but you are the saints of God. Amen. Now, sometimes we don't act like the saints of God, do we? We act more like sorry saints than we do like saint saints. And, we, you know, you, you say, well, if, they're, if they've lived long enough, they did enough stuff, we're going to make them saints. God made you a saint the moment he saved you. But being a saint is a process. You've got a positional, and then you've got the practical. The problem is we are often content with less than what God saved us to be because we're convinced that it is for somebody else and not for me. I, I've been around people that I would, and this is probably hard for you to believe because I can talk, you know, uh, I've been around people that I was very intimidated to open my mouth because I saw them so set apart, so uniquely different. And it put the fear of God in me <laughs> just to be around them. But I had to make a decision. I can either look at them and say, well, I could never be like that, so why try? Or I could say, you know, if God can do that for them, he can do it for me. So let's work on it. And let's let God do the work in me. So the Bible promises a victory. And we are new creations, but we still struggle. Our choice is we stay as we are or we decide to do what God tells us to do. So there's practical sanctification. And then there's perfect sanctification. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Perfect sanctification. That's going to come in glory. Uh, there is no perfect sanctification right now. You're never going to reach a day where you are sinless. You can reach seasons in your life where you are blameless. But sinlessness, you're going to struggle with sin until the day you die. You say, well, you know, I really don't struggle with sin. Well, the Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. And so if you start a day without spending time with the Lord, you've sinned. Because you decided you could start that day and you didn't need the Lord until later on down the road. So you've got to think about what it means when the Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. If I don't operate in the faith realm... I'm operating in a sinful, fleshly realm of decision-making. God set apart a tree in the garden and called it holy. By the way, there's a tree in the future, too. Remember? It's the tree of life. God set apart a day and said it was holy. God set apart a tithe and said it was holy. God set apart a temple and said it was holy. And God set us apart and said we are holy. Now, where can my humanity trip me up? I want to ask you to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 15. Where can we get tripped up in this? Matthew chapter 12. Boy, if there's ever a group that wore badges and uniforms that said we are holy it was the pharisees and the sadducees they loved to talk about how holy they were and when they met real holiness the only thing they knew to do with it was kill it that shows you how holy they were 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. All right, let's look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Then some Pharisees, in verse 1, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then one other reference, Luke chapter 11 and verse 46, where Jesus talked about, and you don't have to turn to it, Luke 11 verse 46, where Jesus talked about how the Pharisees laid heavy burdens on the people. So what are some areas where we tend to stumble or get misdirected in the area of holiness? Here's why this is important. If you got a compass, say you go down to one of the wherever store you buy a compass at in South Georgia. I'm sure you can find them. Some of you have been out in the woods so many times you don't need a compass. You just get lost on your own. And, but you get a compass and it's just two degrees off and you decide from Albany, Georgia, you want to go to the North Pole. But it's only two degrees off. That's why it was on sale. Because it's only two degrees off. And so you start walking and your compass is telling you you're going north toward the North Pole. But in reality, you're two degrees off. Now, you don't stay two degrees off. You keep going off and going off and going off and going off. And somewhere about the North Carolina border, you'll walk right into the Atlantic Ocean. You didn't intend to. You intended to stay on course. You intended to stay on track. But the reality is you had a faulty guide for how you were going to get to your destination. And using that faulty guide, you ended up in a place where you didn't mean to be, intend to be, and certainly not the place where you wanted to be. So what are some things that can get us off course? Either they push us in too far one way or too far the other, and we don't stay where God wants us to stay. Number one is the obvious one is legalism. Legalism. Keeping rules and regulations, legalism is a problem. In fact, it is very easy. And it is something that God's people get into a lot of times, especially as new Christians. Especially for an adult that has saved after living in sin for a while. They, they don't want to do anything wrong, so they get a lot of rules. I can't go here, I can't go there, I can't go there, can't do this, can't do that. And they get all these rules, and they get people around them that are rule keepers. And, and the one that keeps the rules becomes the referee for their life. Oh, that was bad. 
And they just kind of follow them around with a little. Did y'all ever have a teacher in school, in grade school, that had a ruler and would pop you on a hand like that? <laughs> I had a coach, Coach Reynolds. I know he was lost. He wasn't one of the elect. I know, I know he was lost. Coach Reynolds used to take his college class ring and he'd turn around like this and he'd walk behind you and he'd pop you right on the back of the head. So one day he popped me on the back of the head in 10th grade algebra. I didn't like him anyway. He couldn't teach algebra. He was a pretty good defensive back coach, but he was a sorry algebra teacher. And so I decided, me and Jesus decided, I wasn't saved then, but I decided he just gave me a headache. And so I dismissed myself and went home because he popped me on the back of the head. You know what? He was a rule keeper. He was a rule keeper. All I was doing was looking on another page because I thought I remembered something from another page that would help me on that page, but he decided I wasn't looking on the page he wanted me to look on. And so he popped me on the back of the head. You ever had anybody walk up behind you and pop you on the back of the head or thump you on the back of the ear? That's bad. Legalism. In his book, A Hunger for the Holy, Calvin Miller writes these words. Outward appearances... Fasten us to our own false needs for approval. Outwardness is good, but easily spoiled. It finds a way to serve itself while it serves Christ. At last, it moves away from the Savior altogether and finds God-like glory in its own interest. Christ strongly denounced the outward, dry outwardness of the Pharisees. The word hypocrite, which Christ often applied to the Pharisees, refers to an actor's mask. Legalism. Number two, empty and shallow religion. Empty and shallow religion. That's where duplicity comes in. That's where a dichotomy between who I am on Sunday and who I am the rest of the week comes in. That, that's where a lot of Christianity is today is shallow, very shallow. I mean, it's just on the surface. I, I remember um, I, I've been trying since 1986 to get some of Vance Havner's books reprinted. And I remember writing his publisher. He wrote 39 books. About 36 of them were with one publisher. He was the best-selling author they had in the 1940s. Kept the company afloat. His books alone kept the company afloat during World War II and the years following. And I wrote the editor and said, here's my idea. What if we took this and what if we put these books back in print and blah, blah, blah. And, and let's update it a little bit, you know, update the language a little bit because it's, it's dated language from the 30s and 40s. What if we did that? And this is what the guy said to me in the letter back to me. I still have the letter. He said, we have found that Vance Havner's material is too deep for today's culture. Now, let's say that the way he really meant to say it. We're too shallow to read somebody that's that deep. You know, one of the things that, that people want is a lot of illustrations, but, you know, illustrations are like windows. If you got too many, you better watch when you change clothes in your house. 
illustrations are for you to see out, not for the world to see everything. And there has to be depth. And you look at a lot of literature today, and it lacks depth. It lacks any meat. We're giving people pablum, and we're giving people milk, but we're not giving them meat that they need. In fact, you will find most of the shallow books, most of them, will be in the front sections of the store, and then you have to go all the way to the back to find the commentaries. Why? Because commentaries don't sell, which is an indictment on the thinking and the reading of the American church. Because we really don't want somebody to help us understand the scriptures. What we want is a book on how to be a Christian plumber, how to have a Christian diet, how to do Christian exercise, how to have Christian parenting, and we don't really want to know how to be in the Word and let God guide us in those things. And so the fluff sells. And commentaries don't. It's hard to get a commentary printed today. Warren Wiersbe told me that if I had not already started writing years ago, I could not get a book published today. He's only written over 200 books. It would be impossible for me because I don't write the kind of books that sell. I mean, that's where we are. By the way, there's a new study Bible coming out. It's called the Transformers, Transformers, right? Transformers Study Bible. And that Bible will be out in September. We'll have some in the source. It has 40% of the notes from the B series. All of Warren Wiersbe's commentaries on the 66 books of the Bible, 40% of those notes will be inside of that Bible. And I, I'm telling you, as many Sunday school teachers have used Warren Wiersbe during the year, they're just going to hit on a gold mine. Uh, when they get on that. I don't recommend study Bibles too much because there are a lot of good ones out there, but I can tell you we got some of the first ones and nobody's getting mine. I'm not even giving it to anybody in my will. <laughs> I'm going to get buried with it. <laughs> Empty and shallow religion. The Psalms say deep calls to deep. Number three, pride and self-confidence. The scripture says God opposes the proud. Pride and self-confidence. Isn't that what Peter had? Peter was a good religious Jewish fisherman. And he was proud. He always telling Jesus how to do his business. Lord, you don't want to go there. Lord, we don't want to do this. Lord, why don't we build a tent here? Lord, why is this happening? Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. Why? He, he was trying to do good. He, he meant well, but it took Pentecost and brokenness and prayer to, and the Holy Spirit to make Peter into what he could have never been on his own. Peter messed up, messed up, messed up. And when the Holy Spirit came inside of him, you only find one other instant where he has to be corrected because God changed him from thinking outwardly to thinking inwardly in the power of the Holy Spirit, pride and self-confidence. Number four, unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Miss Bertha Smith was a missionary to China. Toughest woman I've ever met in my life. Put the fear of God in you, I'm telling you. Demons tremble at the sound of Bertha Smith's name. It was just, she was something. She was something. And if, if you weren't walking with God and she sensed it, she had no problem 
telling you. In fact, she had no problem telling you, you get down right now on your knees and start confessing sin. Ma'am? Now. Yes, ma'am. Listen, when you survived the communist takeover of China and you stood face to face with people with guns in your face, you're not scared of anybody. And she would have people do that sin list. And a lot of people have taken this story, but it originated with Miss Bertha. And uh, saying, well, I can't think of any sin. So we'll get out and just start talking. And she said he got it right the first time. Miss, Miss Bertha, uh, Tom Ellis will tell you about a time when he was praying with Miss Bertha and a bunch of other people. They were down at Falls Creek. And, <laughs> and he said, man, these people were praying. So they were praying. I mean, it was good. I mean, they were, they, were, they were really praying. It was good. And they said, I was a young preacher at the time, real young, manly, and Ron, and Miss Bertha, and a bunch of other people. And I thought, man, I got to make this good. I got, I got to really make this good. And he said, I got about two sentences into it. Miss Bertha tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you just quit all that garbage? Just start praying. <laughs> now, imagine how that worked in Sunday school this Sunday. We're going to take prayer requests. Okay, so-and-so pray. Hey, why don't you just quit all that garbage and just start praying? <laughs> Unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. A short sin list is what we need to have. David said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Number five, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, why does that keep us from holiness? Well... Because that's the opposite of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things being added unto you. You see, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are trying to get all the things that we want when really what we need is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the things we really need are added to us, are given to us. It's the reverse of seeking the Lord first. When we look at those things... When we have those attitudes, what we're saying is, I, I want to have a life on my terms. And that's the far pendulum swing from holiness that is actually running from God and abusing the grace of God and saying, I can live like I want to, think like I want to, do what I want to do, because after all, I'm saved. And that'll keep you from holiness for a long, long time. I've done funerals and I get this story I don't have anybody in this church in mind but I do have some folks from way back about 30 years ago I've done some funerals for people and I mean the people that are being buried honest to goodness there wasn't a lick of evidence that they knew the Lord not a lick I mean they lived in sin they lived in rebellion they ran around they drank they just I mean, you just name it. They did it. And then you go and sit down with a family, and the family wants you to preach them into heaven. You know, well, they made a decision when they were nine. What did they decide to do? Spit in God's face? You know, I'm going to tell you something, folks. There are people that think that, that salvation means you can act like you want to act. It's the opposite Salvation means I adjust my actions to the way Jesus wants me to act. I don't abuse the grace of God that's been given to me. Number six, impatience. Impatience. 
Now, how in that world is that a hindrance to holiness? Well, it's the opposite of self-control. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And when I'm impatient, I try to help God out or I try to create something because God's not working according to my timetable. Here's where impatience comes in. It's not understanding that holiness is a process, not an event. I remember sitting down with Ron Dunn one time and talking to him about this area. And I said, Ron, I don't understand. I've asked God for this. I've asked God for this. I've asked God to do this. I've asked God to do that. And why didn't God do it? And, and only as Ron Dunn could talk to me, he said, well, Michael, you obviously have not positioned yourself where God could trust you with that. You see, I wanted it on my terms. I wanted God to do things my way. And it's just been in the last few years that God's begun to answer some prayers that I've prayed for 30 years. To do some things that I've asked him to do for 30 years. And I can tell you, there are times when I get on an airplane, and there's time when I'm sitting in my study and I'm writing and trying to hit a writing deadline, and I'm thinking, Lord, I'm in my mid-50s. You could have done this when I was in my 30s and I had the energy to do it. And it's almost as if God whispers in my ear, I couldn't trust you with it then. You see, we can get impatient with God and think, I want God to open this door for me. I want God to do this for me. I want God to do that for me. God's going to do what he can trust you with. Amen. That's what he's going to do. And when he doesn't operate on our timetable, then sometimes what we do is we say, well, if God's not going to do it, I'm going to do it anyway. And we'll be like the children of Israel. We'll rush off into battle and we'll come back whipped and defeated because we ran ahead of God. Don't run ahead of God. God's got a process. He's got a timetable. He's got a plane. And as Ron used to say, God may seem slow, but he's never late. Impatience. Number seven, laziness after God. Laziness after God, which is an opposite of first love. Because the holy life is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And he said to the church, you have left your first love. Laziness after God. Wilberforce said there is no shortcut to holiness. It must be the business of our whole lives. Laziness after God. Now, there's two quotes that I want you to see here. Mrs. Jesse Penn Lewis said, The chief condition for the working of evil is passivity in exact opposition to the condi condition which God requires for his working. In other words, holiness does not come by osmosis. And passivity is actually... One of the ways that the devil makes us be content with less than what God wants for us. Now look at the next quote. Watchman Nee said, A passive spirit not only provides the enemy one an opportunity to function, but binds the hands of the Holy Spirit as well. He, the Holy Spirit, will not operate without the cooperation of the believer. 
So here's what I mean by this. When we're lazy after God, we underestimate our enemy. And we underestimate how aggressive he is in strategizing ways to pull us down and to defeat us. We underestimate that he has a plan, that he has a strategy, that he is going after us to keep us from being what God has called us and saved us to be. 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. The Jews celebrate Rosh Hashanah, which is a traditional Jewish New Year. It is the day, that traditional Jewish New Year is the day for the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. In Jewish tradition, this day of the Jewish New Year is the first of the days of awe, A-W-E. Meaning it's the first of 10 days of repentance that culminates in the day of atonement. So when they blew the ram's horn, it meant one thing. In these next 10 days, we need to wake up because we are moving toward a significant day on God's calendar, a day of atonement. It was a call to God's people to wake up, to remember, to repent, to examine their deeds, to abandon anything that was evil in their lives. And I would say that we are in a day when we need the ram's horn to blow. That the church needs to wake up to who we are and who we are supposed to be in Christ. Now let me ask you to stand if I read, as I read Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Revelation 3.1. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Now, here's, here's the thing. Sometimes we think that holiness is something we can put off. And just before we die at a ripe old age, we can start getting serious about our holiness. What the Spirit said in Revelation 3 and what the ram's horn was about leading up to the day of atonement is this today is the day you need to think about being holy not later not later on here's here's how the devil how we have underestimated the devil and here's how he's gotten us to think here's what he does he says to a middle schooler and to a high schooler hey you only get to do this once so live like you want to live and then get right with god after high school 
You'll get all new friends. You'll be in a new circle. Nobody will know you. You can get right with God after high school. And then you show up on a college campus, and you realize, hey, i got four more years. Now I'm out from under my parents' authority. Now I can go do whatever I want to do. So I'll get right after I get out of college. And then you get out of college, and then you meet somebody, and you marry them. Say, so, well, after we've been married a while, then we're going to get right, and we're going to get serious with God. Then you have kids, and then you say, well, i got these kids to raise. i got all this stuff. we got to keep up with the Joneses. we got to go to soccer. we got to go to baseball. we got to go to ballet. we got to go to tap. we got to do all these things. After the kids are a little older, then I'm going to get serious about my relationship with God. And then the kids get older, and they move off, and then you say, you know what? We've had kids in our house, seems like forever, especially the Kendricks. And we've had... <laughs> and, and it seems like we've just had kid after kid after... We just keep having kids. I mean, that's, we're in the staff multiplication program in our staff. I don't know about what you're doing in your home, but we're helping the growth and birth rate in America on this staff. Thank you very much. And so... You think, man, the kids are finally gone. We've got emptiness. Let's, let's buy a boat. Let's get something at the lake. And let's take off every weekend and go enjoy ourselves. We hadn't been able to enjoy ourselves. And then you find out that doesn't work. And then you get to be a senior adult. So, you know, it's about time for us to get involved. But now that we're retired, we really got time on our hands. And we really got a little bit extra. And so now we can keep doing. And before you know it, you've lived your whole life saying, one day I'm going to take my life with God serious. And you look back over and it's wasted. It's just wasted. Now I want to ask you something. Is that the way you and I want to meet Jesus? Looking back over our lives and telling him all the reasons why we decided not to take him serious when we had the mental and the physical capacities to do so. It's one shot, one life. One opportunity. And God said, you be holy like I am holy. If not today, then when? If it's not going to be today, then what day will it be? Oh, by the way, there's no promise of tomorrow. So if we're going to get on the path of being holy... We need to start it now. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you that you would help us to be your people. Holy and set apart. Lord, it is, it is the holiness, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in a church that is attractive and draws the lost to Christ. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God that is winsome and warm and fresh. It blows the staleness out. It, it takes off the mask and the facades. It, it allows us to be what you saved us to be. It, it makes us like the church in Antioch, that when the world evaluated them and looked at them after a year, they called them Christians. They were like Christ. Lord, let the testimony of the individual believers in this church in my life be that when people look at us in this community and the surrounding areas that they think we're just a lot like Jesus because when their lives are unraveling they're not going to look for people who look like them and act like them they're going to look for people that look like they found an answer so father send us from this place with a desire to be your people in this community. Lord, send us away with a hunger for the holy. In Jesus' name, amen.
God bless you. See you later this week. They're going to sing while we leave. Mm-hmm.